Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as $5 a month if this show has blessed you or even cursed you or if it has just simply provoked you to think differently, freshly, more biblically about Jesus, God, and the world, and the Holy Spirit, I guess. We should be Trinitarian. Then please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. My guest today is, uh, and we talk about this in the, in the, at the beginning of the podcast, is a friend of mine whom I've never met in person. Isn't that so 2021? Like I've known of Kurt Willems for almost 10 years, maybe eight, maybe eight plus years. We've been corresponding through email. We've talked on the phone. Uh, we've uh, uh, read each other's blogs and promoted each other's stuff. And um, he's just a, a very... Um, one of those guys you meet and you're, you just kind of finish each other's sentences. I love his heart. Um, just to get to, yeah, just so you get to know a little bit about him. He's a pastor, writer, spiritual director. Uh, he spent several years in student and adult ministry in central California. So that's another commonality we have. I grew up in Fresno, California. Kurt grew up in Dinuba, which probably three of you have heard of Dinuba, but Dinuba, maybe five of you have heard of Fresno. But <laughs> um, Dinuba is just a little country town of, maybe half hour away from Fresno. I grew up, I mean, playing baseball in Dinuba. Um, so really interesting that our, our paths have crossed again here more recently. He is, um, well, he, he has a master of divinity from Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary and a master's degree in comparative religion from the University of Washington. He also, uh, um, runs a podcast called a the, uh, theology curator used to be called the Paul cast. And also, um, he, I came across him, I think, originally when he was blogging at Pangea, um, his Pangea blog, which he's rolled that into another blog. I forget the name of it. He um, talks about it on the pod, on, on the podcast. Um, married, he has. He's married. He's got two um, daughters, and he has planted a church. I mean, several years, seven years ago, he planted a church in Seattle. So he's a pastor in the Seattle area, and we just had a great time talking about his recent book, well, recent book, his first book <laughs> and recent book that's coming out, I believe, if if my schedule is accurate, then it comes out tomorrow, March 16th, it comes out. Um, it's called Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain. And um, we, we dig into the humanity of Christ. I do think that uh, as we both talk about on the podcast, that I think Christians can tend to overemphasize the deity of Christ at the expense of Christ's full humanity. And we talk about that at great length. We even border on the, on the line of heresy. <laughs> so if that bothers you, then maybe, um, maybe this isn't the podcast for you, but what does it mean that Jesus was fully human? Not at the expense of his divinity, but we also can't embrace the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. We must embrace both hundred percent, hundred percent divinity and humanity. Um, so please welcome to the show for the first time, my, my friend from a distance, the one and only Kurt Williams. friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my friend, Kurt Willems. Uh, Kurt and I, <laughs> we've never, this is, this is such the world we live in, man. We've never 
met in person and yet we've known about each other in some ways known each other gosh since 2012 i think we first started email exchanging um we've written blogs kind of back and forth we've uh, we've talked on the phone and i i feel like it's weird like i feel like Oh yeah, I mean Kurt go way back and I'm like I don't we've never hung out in person. So this is crazy. But anyway, it's so good nah, to have yeah, you on the podcast. It's super crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming yeah, on the podcast. No, it's, it's and cool. um Yeah, why, why don't we start with just to, for people that don't know who you are. Give give us a snapshot of your journey, your life in ministry, um in the faith and however long or short you want to take and then I want to talk about your your new book uh, Echoing Hope. Yeah, no. Hey, thanks for having me, man. This is a, it's a good excuse to have an extended conversation, right? Yeah. Like I, I just enjoy that part of it. So, um, yeah, I, uh, man, where do I start? Well, I'll just give you the big picture of my story and it'll lead to how I ended up being a book guy who, <laughs> who wrote one. Um, yeah. So, so I grew up in central California and grew up in a conservative environment, for sure. Traditional evangelical Christianity. People hear California and they often think, oh, he grew up in this like liberal hotbed. The truth is, if you go to central California, you're in like a, a bit of a Bible belt, to mm-hmm. be honest. And so a lot of farming there. Actually, most of the world's fruit, I'm pretty sure, is produced <laughs> there. Uh, I, I had to pack fruit at various points in my teenage years. So I, I know uh, it, I know the small town environment. Yeah. And Real quick, what, um, what was the specific up, yeah. town? Because I, yeah, I'm, I grew up in Fresno. You, I forget the yeah. Dinuba, Dinuba is where I grew right. up. This little small town, yeah, which is right there between Fresno and Visalia, yeah. basically. Um, yeah, and so I grew up in a Mennonite Brethren church that probably felt more Baptist than Anabaptist. Do people know those categories? And and that's fine. I actually, you know, some people have traditional-ish upbringings and they have negative things about that. And and to be really honest, I'm fortunate in that my story doesn't include, you know, these deep wounds from my childhood that had to do with church. Actually, the church was a safe space, a saving space, a a gracious space. And so um, that's kind of where I got my feet wet with Jesus. But the other part of my childhood is this, and this is throughout the book, is that I suffered a lot of physical violence at home. My my parents um, split when I was uh, a toddler, and I lived with my mom full time. Eventually, a man came into our lives that was an alcoholic and was violent. And hmm. from the age about about five to eleven, was just uh, on and on and off again abuse, whether it was verbal or physical towards my mom more, but towards me often. And, and so you can imagine as a kid, um, I'm growing up in a church environment. My mom, who I dearly love to this day, I don't want anyone to think she's like the enemy of my story. She's actually not. Um, but my mom and the situation we had during those years, very like just painful and dark when this man was around. And, so I had this like dual experience of life. And so the church was really where people knew superficially my life was hard. Like we were on welfare and food stamps. And that was enough for people to say, hey, th- things are hard at home. And so I got hand-me-downs from uh, a family where, by the way, the hand-me-downs I got was <laughs> we were best men in each other's wedding. You know, like the way the story rolls forward. Um, I had folks who took a special interest in me that did this because they believed in me and they believed in the way of Jesus. And so I had this really hard upbringing, 
there was a climactic event of abuse that went down when I was in fifth grade. And that led to him being out of our lives. But really, I had to unpack what that meant for myself. So into my teenage years, I still lived this sort of dual existence, not abuse at home, as much as having this sort of rebellious side to me, trying to figure out, am I this edgy, um, you know, I, I was into skateboarding. So some of the culture of the 90s, you can imagine that comes with that. Or am I this follower of Jesus that people see at youth group? And that negotiation in light of my past went on until I was a junior, right before I was a junior in high school, actually the end of my sophomore year of high school, went on a mission trip and had this powerful experience with Jesus, opened up the book of James and the Holy Spirit just convicted me like, dude, if you want to follow me, um, you also have to live in a way that lines up with what it means to be a follower. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't condemning, it was gracious, it was beautiful. And Jesus just started working in my life through other people I saw actually following Jesus and, and being inspired by them. And uh, by that summer, I uh, had such a turnaround in those months that my youth pastor sent me to summer camp with little kids and I was a counselor at camp. I mean, I don't know why he did this, but he believed that somehow God was using me in these months. And uh, a couple of weeks later, after having that first sort of uh, ministry experience, I had a powerful experience at that camp as a high schooler and felt God call me into ministry, had what I now describe as charismatic experiences, not knowing they were charismatic experiences at the time, visions of myself speaking to groups and this sense of power and um, God's love just sort of shaping me in that specific moment for a trajectory that would take me a totally different way. Um, through that, last couple of years of high school, I magically became the spiritual leader on our private Christian school campus. It was bizarre. I mean, really bizarre. Uh, I had moments where I got to share parts of my story with the whole campus community, and that just broke open all kinds of things. And uh, by college, I was doing internship ministry, eventually was a director on staff during the last part of my college years at that first church, went on to be a youth pastor at another church in town, and eventually uh, found myself in um, a different church where I was hired on to do multi, multi-site campus ministry. And during those, those years, I was living in a town called Visalia, doing ministry there. It was a great couple of years, but what we realized as all of these plans for launching the second campus of this church, we had a venue, we had a team, we had all that stuff. We realized that where the church was at experientially, um, we might use words like DNA or whatever kind of language that's not in the Bible, but we use to describe these shifts that you experience culturally. Uh, there's a big DNA shift happening and there was backlash because of it. Kind of the missional shift was happening. And as a result, we sat down with, uh, you know, my lead pastor, exec, and me, and we realized the plan is good, the timing's bad. Hmm. And so I was like, what, what does that mean? We just spent a year planning this thing. You hired me basically to do this. And what does that look like? Well, I happened to be going on a spiritual retreat with a bunch of church planty types uh, that I'd been invited to that weekend. And we decided, let's just discern and pray. And on that retreat, it became clear to me that what I'd been preparing for, for a church campus, those skills would translate into church planting, 
but with a different kind of um, posture. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be transplanting someone else's vision, but letting God give me a different vision. And so uh, all of that led to finishing seminary, ending up in Seattle, Washington, of all places. And we've been here for whew, seven and a half years. My daughter will be eight in about two months and she was three months old when we got here. Mm. So man, it, it's been a wild journey. And uh, during those years I started blogging and that seemed to do pretty well. So I got some cool opportunities along the way and uh, had a bunch of almost books that I'm so <laughs> grateful to God did not come to fruition. And finally in the last couple of years, uh, God really laid on my heart the humanity of Jesus and how how we can lean into his humanity to experience our own formation. And uh, eventually that translated into a book that uh, is going out into the world. And it's still surreal because I haven't even held a copy. So <laughs> it's like, is this real? I don't think it is. But I'm, I'm very, very um, grateful to the Lord and to yeah. people who have supported me in that process. So that's a super big vi yeah. version. Of course, uh, in the process, we started a kind of a, what I don't know what labels to put on our church. It's not typical. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that, but it's yeah. um, rooted in the Anabaptist tradition. And we were sent by the brethren in Christ and they've supported us. And it's been uh, an up and down, challenging, forming, good journey. Yeah, good. Well, your book, uh, so it's Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain, uh, comes out exactly, what's today? One month from today, March 16th. I, that's what Amazon oh, shows. Oh, yeah. And <sighs> I you didn't realize it's the 16th, yeah. Um, who's the publisher? Is it Baker? No, this is uh, uh, Waterbrook, who's part oh, of the Random House okay. Family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got a forward from Scott McKnight, a, an afterward from Brian Zahn, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim down. Shane Claiborne endorsed it. Sarah Bessie. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know why I chuckled there. Um, uh, Walter Brueggemann. If you guys don't know Walter Brueggemann, um, he's a well, I mean, re renowned Old Testament scholar. Jonathan Martin, who's kind of a, he, he's got a big platform. I mean, these are some big names that are endorsing it. So well, well done. That, you know, I, I don't know people, like it's, um, uh, when, when you write a book and if, especially if you're a new or mid-level author, it's hard, man, to get somebody oh. with a plot because they, they get, it's hard to get somebody to endorse it because they get asked 10 times a day. I mean, totally. I mean, I, I've got a pretty small platform and I get asked all the time. I can imagine like Beth Moore or Scott McKnight or some of these guys that's like, they probably get hit literally. I mean, probably several times a day get asked to do this, do that, endorse this, forward that. So mm -hmm. all that to say, um, the fact that they did endorse your book, that speaks volumes, man. It really Ooh. does. <laughs> oh, man. I honestly, I was blown away. You know, some people that I had good relationships with were just like, dude, pandemic plus season yeah. can't do it. And I totally get that. And it was fine. But uh, many people were able to or, or you know, Brian Zond, I hit him up kind of late, to be honest, for this afterward idea. We're like, hey, it'd be cool to have like a pastoral word after this from someone other than me. Right. And uh, so we were wrestling with who could do it on such a short notice. And so I was like, hey, Brian, um, you don't have time to do this. I know. 
but can you do it? And he goes, yeah, no, I definitely don't have time to do this, but for you, sure. And he just kind of <laughs> cranked one out for me. And I, I, I mean, the support, uh, yeah. and it's been cool, man. I mean, uh, I've developed a friendship with someone I never would have thought I would have Ben Higgins, who was the star of the bachelor five years ago. You know, he was the main oh. guy for the TV show. The bachelor happens to be a follower of Jesus and was writing a book about when I was. And, uh, Dude, we've become buddies. He came to Seattle like a week before the pandemic shut down for this whole like bachelor in per the bachelor live, you know, uh, which was this like show taking the bachelor concept on the road and he's hosting it. And dude, we got like backstage hung hanging out. He gave us the Hollywood experience, showed us his bus. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, I had to log out. I had to log John Legend out of out of Netflix so I could sign on to Netflix in my Hollywood bus that I'm taking around the country. Wow. You know, it's just like, what? And he's like the most down to earth dude ever. So he, yeah. he's another kind of like, wow, like you're, what a gift, you know? Yeah. But then of course, like most of these folks are in the pastoral authorship mm. lane, a couple of theologians and, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm overwhelmed. I'm It still doesn't seem real to be real, really honest. <laughs> give us the, yeah. give us the ele elevator pitch on the book. Like what's your, I mean, the subtitle, you know, how the humanity of Jesus redeems our pain. So you can kind of get the gist of where I think you're going to go. But yeah, get, can you give us a two, three minute overview of yeah. what the book's all about? Yeah, yeah, totally. And maybe I can start by saying what the book was going to be about and then how it, like became this, because I think that's relevant for framing my journey for people. Um, for a long time, I've been fascinated by the humanity of Jesus. Mm. Uh, N.T. Wright's been a huge influence in my theological formation. And so he has often emphasized, along with Scott McKnight and a lot of others uh, that I've come to admire, emphasize like, when you see Jesus, you see the prototypical mm -hmm. image bearer. Like if, if we want to grow as followers of Jesus, it's not a call to deny our humanity. It's actually a call to become more human, mm. to actually lean into our humanity, the the garden-shaped humanity that was intended, you know, in the first place. And so when, when I was thinking about this, if Jesus is that um, model for what it looks like to live and experience the world as fully human without discounting the divinity stuff. And I'm very explicit, I'm a Trinitarian, all of that stuff. I have a whole chapter where I break down why I wanna focus on his humanity. Um, then I started to really get fired up about, okay, there's a lot we can learn just by looking at Jesus through the lens of his human life mm -hmm. and ministry and teachings. And so my first version of this book was actually gonna be called something like Human Like Jesus, which is actually, <laughs> now it's the, the title of chapter three. So that feels still in there, but I, I got in the room with some really cool publishers and the feedback I got was, this is like, if you can get someone to start the book, it's awesome because this is something that's relatable, like becoming human like Jesus. It's it's a little counterintuitive because people don't always think that way, but it's also uh, life-giving. But where's the real like felt need hook? Like where's the raw sort of connection to his humanity? Like why does it matter really for the, the single mom or yeah. the the dad with identity issues or the student, you know? And so what it ended up doing was just taking me back to the drawing board and I sat with it for a long time. Hmm. And then one day out of the blue, it just hit me. 
how have I experienced the humanity of Jesus? Well, it's been through all my junk. It's been through my pain. It's been through my suffering. And and that's that's common to every human. There's no human that experiences a life free of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Jesus stepped into. The Bible makes that utterly clear before his crucifixion. I mean, he's dealing with painful things all the time. Mm-hmm. And yet he's showing people how to step into pain in a whole different kind of way than the world would offer us as it is. And so what I do in the book essentially is there's four parts. And the first part really is just trying to get people to understand, like we have a problem. This world was designed for shalom is one way people talk about this and relationships that are without alienation between God, others, creation, Mm -hmm. and even the, the self that God sees. And um, anytime there's friction in any of those relationships, the Bible seems to call this sin. And so we have experienced this disrupted shalom experience of life. And if we want to like begin the process of healing and being formed back towards that initial vision, what would it look like to take Jesus absolutely serious as the guide and model for how to do that? Um, And so, The first part really wrestles with that. I wrestle with the problem of evil at the end of that section. Mm. I I lean towards kind of an open future view. That might be my most controversial little section in the book, Mm -hmm. depending on who you are. There might be (laughs) others, but but like, you know, and I'm kind of like, I don't know if this is right. This is where I'm at at the moment. I really try and hold these things with open hands that are edgier and, and I sincerely do that in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then we step into part two, three, and four, which are really the birth of Jesus all the way. The last chapter is the resurrection of Jesus. And I take moments and episodes from Jesus's journey. Um, and I and I try and ask the question, how, how can we find our identities empowered by God as we look at Jesus? And how can we step into challenges and frustrations and real pain and suffering as we move with Jesus. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, this is kind of my manifesto on Jesus while I'm talking about the raw stuff of life. That's basically That's what this cool. book is. Wow. The, the yeah. humanity of Jesus that I'm, um, when, when I was in, uh, college, I almost said, but it wasn't Bible college, but it was a Christian college, master's master's college mm-hmm. now called the master's university. Um, so really conservative yeah. place, but I had a professor there, uh, Doug Bookman. Okay. Nobody's, uh, there's probably okay. three and a half people listening that will even recognize the name Doug Bookman, but Doug Bookman was a outside the box kind of thinker, very conservative. I mean, you can't teach her unless you're very conservative, but he had mm-hmm. this thing and he, about the humanity of Jesus that I'm still a little shocked for how conservative of a place it was, how he kind of was able to um, was able to teach what he did. Like he pushed the humanity of Jesus as far as it can go. In fact, he 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 went to Dallas Theological Seminary to do a PhD in New Testament or Bible exposition, and he wanted to do his PhD dissertation on the humanity of Jesus. And they said, I think I don't. Don't quote me on this, but I think yeah. they said, yeah, this is kind of heresy. So no, we're, you can't, whatever. But he, he's like, no, it's not like here. Like Jesus didn't read people's minds. Um, yeah. He takes a strong view. I think of the canonic view of uh, yeah. Philippians 2, 7, where Jesus laid aside the, the independent right of his attributes. So all the things that, yeah. that makes up 
God, all the attributes make that makes up God, he gave, he set the independent use of that aside. Is that an accurate way of describing canonic? Oh yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I've done it, you know, if you just look at the language there in, in Philippians two and NT Wright has some great scholarly articles on this. It does seem, it's really tricky language, but I, I think that's a pretty accurate way of reading that text. But then we have a, then we have a human Jesus that isn't just floating through life, you know, healing yeah. people and reading people's minds. And he even has a, by, by this professor, Doug Bookman has a cool explanation for when it says that Jesus knew what they were thinking, like the Pharisees and stuff. But he's like, yeah, put yourself in that situation. You don't need to be a mind reader to know what they were thinking when they're in the corner grumbling. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's not that he's just like scanning the room and looking at all everybody's thoughts, you know, like, yeah. or even that several passages in Luke five, I think acts 11, which says like, that he did miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning Jesus couldn't do miracles just independently. Yeah. Like a spirit would come upon yeah. him to perform miracles. So it was very much just Trinitarian submission. Mm. And I mean, it sounds like I'm preaching to the choir here, but I mean, dude, I, um, dude, I, I you're giving me all the chapters I should have written. I think we've overly <laughs> div divinized Jesus or, or swallowed up his humanity and his deity, partly because we're in this day and age, we're defending the deity of Christ. That's kind of a, a main attack mm -hmm. on Christianity, but let us not totally. forget the first heresy was Gnosticism denying his humanity. Right. I mean, that, that mm, was the big, yeah, the first yeah. heresy that the early church faced. So, um, Oh man, dude, you're, you're nailing so much here. And you know, one of the things he said in, uh, one of my chapters, well, that chapter on is humanity. I specifically have a section where I talk about like, it's not possible to necessarily over deify Jesus because Jesus is God. Like we believe that, but what we often do, even if practically, even if we don't cognitively do this, but practically and experientially, we underhumanize him. And yeah. that to me yeah. is the foundational problem that I think your professor was addressing, you're addressing so well. We, when we underhumanize him, we kind of can then practically speaking, over idealize the mm. human Jesus. Mm. Um, you know, and, and certainly Jesus lived perfect. Jesus, by the power of the spirit, did all of the things to overcome darkness that um, many of us are like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do that many miracles in my lifetime because I'm not that aligned with the father like Jesus was or in sync with the spirit like Jesus was. But but when you look at Jesus, like there's so much we can gain from watching him do what he does in the gospels. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I I, I mentioned in the book is like, we make him into an idol and I'm not even talking about worship per se, but like, you know, um, an untouchable, an untouchable yeah. model. Like, well, he did that because yeah. he's God. I can't exactly. relate to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I, I talk about Dorothy day saying like, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. And I think we do that with Jesus. We dismiss Jesus when we don't take the humanity side of it as seriously yeah. as we do the divinity side. And so this, that's the, that's the foundational theological premise. Of course, I've re I'm writing to a popular audience, so yeah. um, you can track down I, tons of footnotes and endnotes to try and like be like, hey, I'm rooting this in something, but I can't say everything that there is to be said here. Um, but yeah, that's basically yeah. where I, my starting point for sure. It, even the whole thing like, how do we know Jesus is God? Well, he did miracles. It's like, well, yeah. B biblically speaking, uh, lots of people do miracles. Mm -hmm. Elisha does miracles. Mm -hmm. Does that mean Elisha's God? Um, do, you know, Moses did miracles. Yeah. I mean, you know, like yeah. 
just because God is performing miracles through a human figure doesn't mean necessarily that he's doing that to vindicate his deity. I think in most past, and there might be a couple passages where he does say point to his son of God identity, but even then in the Bible, son of God was a Royal title, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a a divine title. Like David is called a son of God and and the Davidic kingship, they were called sons of God. And that's, that's, so I, I, and and it's hard because when, when, when you start, when you start to maybe correct some of these popular pieces of evidence that we've used to justify his deity, it looks like you're trying to deny his Mm -hmm. deity. That's why this, this conversation can get really, really touchy, you know? Um, But even like the, the, you've mentioned, you know, he, yes, he was perfect, you know, but Hebrew says he learned obedience. Like he learned. Yeah. I, I, I often wonder like, and this, so here's a provocative question. We'd love to hear your thoughts. When did Jesus discover his deity? Hmm. People say, oh, he always knew it. I'm like, okay, so wait, you're telling me he came out of the womb and he's like, (laughs) hey, how long do I got to put this straight on? (laughs) You know, like, was he literally like a month old and knew he was divine? Or is that, and is that, is that a true human one month year old? And if if the answer is, well, no, okay. When he was a baby crying, you know, he didn't know it. Okay. Well, when did he discover he was divine? But even that language sounds very heretical. Am I being a heretic by... Asking the question, when did he discover that he was divine? I don't think so because <laughs> I, I think and I'm I like saying, your hesitation. Qualified? No, I think it's good. I think it's good. Um, this this question doesn't scare me at all. Um, I, I think. Well, first of all, I haven't done a lot of work around this recently. I know years ago I read some. N.T. Wright has quite a bit. Maybe it's in. Um, Jesus and the victory of God, one of those really big books. He does this whole thing about Jesus's conscious awareness of his Mm. vocation and how that connects to his divinity. He does some of that work in some of his denser books. But as I, as I think about it, um, I, I don't know when that moment came, but I think it's clear that as his ministry is happening, he starts to self-identify as the embodiment of Israel's God, right? So yeah. could it have been that he had this lingering awareness already at 12 in the temple right. when he disobeys, you know, and hangs, which again, is that disobedience? Is that like sin? You know, we, we could ask all <laughs> kinds of fun questions around this. Apparently you can do what your parents don't want you to do and not be sinning because your father in heaven wants you to do something, right? So there's uh, just yeah. some really interesting human elements here, but yeah, so I don't know when Jesus became aware of it, but I certainly know that, um, you know, it challenges my narrative of where does sin begin in a sense. Like, mm-hmm. like do toddler are toddlers sinning when they don't listen? I don't think that's sin. I think that's learning, obedience. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I think that's growing into he, like a full on understanding of, uh, you know, human purpose in the world, you know? And so, um, so when does sin begin? When are you like accountable? And uh, development's just a fascinating yeah. thing to even think about, you know? So even the development of his awareness is, uh, so I wish we had more access to Jesus' yeah. young life. That's the bottom line, I think, here. Well, the Gnostics give, fill in a lot of gaps. I don't know if you've read early Gnostic literature, first, second century, second, third century. They fill in a lot of yeah. those, those gaps that I think, oh. again, overly divinitizing, div, divinizing mm-hmm. his his personhood. But um, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah totally. So the 12-year-old, the temple scene in Luke, I mean, uh, did, did you not know I'd be in my father's house? I, is that, you know, say, so he calls God. God, my father, which was, 
not unheard of, but that, that, that identity that, um, that, that does typically come after his kind of ministry. Um, mm-hmm. but we call, again, we call Godfather. It doesn't mean we're divine, you know, um, and right, we do have in the totally. old Testament Israel viewed as like, like it's typically not. Yeah. I would have to go back and look. It's, it's, it's not that common that Israel or an old Testament saint calls God father, but it's not unheard of or even David, like he, yeah. he calls David, my son. Yeah. So I think even the covenant second Samuel seven where the Davidic covenants made, I think there's father son language there. So, so even that, mm-hmm. like, is he becoming aware of his div- divinity? May- maybe it, it could be, or was he becoming more aware of his messianic vocation? Was it a both and, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't. And, and there's I, my, my, my purpose is not to ha- find an answer, but just to open up, just to challenge, I think my own and other people's, assumption that about the character of Jesus that leans so heavy on the deity side that I think it sometimes can eradicate his, his humanity. Um, yeah. Temp- Man, he was tempted good. in all forms that we are. So did he yeah. notice that a girl was super hot? Was Mary Magdalene like super hot? And he was like, Oh man, this girl's washing my feet, you know? Yeah, no, like yeah. we picture Jesus like asexual, right? But does that mean yeah. to be heterosexual and resist t- temptation to lust? Is resisting the temptation sin? We're going to say, well, hope not. Otherwise, we're in big trouble. <laughs> well, then did Jesus not experience that as yeah. well? Um, I don't know. Yeah. No, man, that's, I mean, I think all of that's relevant. And, and, and I think the more we can ground Jesus in human experience without dismissing the Trinitarian aspect of that's so important. Um, I think the more then we can start asking questions about what does it mean for me to be human, uh, to be part of God's like restoration of creation Mm -hmm. as, as the family of Jesus. Um, what does it mean for me in this moment? As I look at Jesus, uh, when he's vulnerable, when he's, um, experiencing identity shaping, like, you know, the, the baptism of Jesus, maybe that's a moment where Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this is clear to me now because God literally says, you are my son whom I love and whom I'm well, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so wherever this like clarity comes to Jesus, there is utter identity formation happening in Jesus that I think I want that sort of formation in my own soul. Like I want to experience the, the, the raw, unfiltered, terrifyingly beautiful love of God, Mm. like Jesus did, you know? And so, um, I think there's just so much, uh, even from the early parts of his ministry and moving forward that we can say, whoa, there's something here for me. Mm -hmm. That's good. Where, where would you, where would you put yourself on? And I don't know how to how to what labels to use here because I, I can't stand sure. labels. But on the conservative, moderate, liberal spectrum, <laughs> both let's just say maybe politically, theologically, and sociologically. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. those get wrapped up into one, um, and I, I I kind of resist wrapping those yeah. all up into one. You can be conservative theologically and and very liberal uh, or progressive socially, and that as most of my black brothers and sisters remind me, like you can, <laughs> you can, yeah. you, can uh, you can do both. But um, yeah, where would you, where, tell me about your theological journey and how yeah. you describe yourself yeah. now. Sure. So, you know, in my younger years, I was definitely formed in a, 
fairly traditional um, conservative environment, both politically and theologically and uh, sociologically because, well, I was white. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's uh, it's been a journey of, you know, a lot of the big word people use is deconstruction. I'm kind of I think that word has a place, but I'm kind of like, let's talk about other things sometimes, <laughs> you know, but I do think it still has a place. And I, I respect that word for what it means to people. Um, and so I went through that in my early and mid twenties a lot. Um, but my, my deconstruction theologically was always rooted in the Bible. And if I were, if I was misinterpreting scripture, so I always had sort of this very orthodox space for the Bible and for Jesus, mm. but I was willing to ask hard questions. So I'm not a young earth creationist anymore. I hold to nonviolence now. I, you know, I have all of these things that I didn't grow up with that scripture convinced me my sociological, theological, and political um, climate as a child had shaped and happened to have been wrong. Um, and so, so now I would say theologically, I, um, if, if evangelical is a lowercase and, um, you know, and kind of very generous evangelicalism, I'm definitely in there. Mm -hmm. Um, that's my family. I, I don't, I don't know how I love or don't love the word just because of its cultural yeah. sociological connotation, mm -hmm. but like, that's who I am. Like, you can't just not be something like by declaration, I'm not that, but I'm still part of a denomination that's part of the evangelical association or whatever that thing's called. You know, so like, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I would say I'm uh, very committed to the historic Orthodox faith of Christianity. Um, but everything outside of the creeds, I think, and, and, and Orthodox understandings of the creeds, uh, I think are up for conversation mm -hmm. and, and I want to be willing to have those conversations, um, you know, uh, name the debate. I'll tell you where I'm at. I yeah. guess I probably, uh, you know, on, on the free will versus Calvinism I already alluded to that. I kind of like some of the more conservative versions of open theism, mm -hmm. uh, the Greg Boyd zone where God isn't actually limited in knowledge, but God actually knows more because God knows every possible outcome and every possible future and allows us to make the choice, kind of the choose your own adventure vision of open theism, mm -hmm. um, you know, on uh, a lot of different things. I would probably be for a very conservative church liberal. But if you think about the broad evangelical scholarship conversation, mm -hmm. I would be, you know, just barely left of center, I think, uh, in yeah. that. And so um, politically, I, I'm an Anabaptist, so I'm kind of like, screw the empire. <laughs> but, but I think I politically, like if, if I were to vote in the last election and all of the candidates were available, not just two, Eh, I probably felt the burn a little bit. I mean, that's fine, you know. <laughs> Bernie, it's, bro. <laughs> it's, give, give me, give me, give me Bernie, who's pro or who's um, who's pro life. Give me a Bernie that's pro life, and you've yeah. got a platform I could support very easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and then sociologically, I I want to continue to learn and listen to Black, Indigenous, and people of color because uh, as much as my life was full of pain and suffering and um, a hard upbringing. Um, my, my hard upbringing wasn't caused by my race. It was actually easier to lift out of my upbringing because mm. of my race. And I, mm. I want to just honor that and name that. That's so, good. so yeah, yeah, that's kind of the zone I, I maybe mm. would put myself in. 
What, what's it like doing ministry in Seattle? Seattle's probably one of the harder places to do ministry. At least that's what I've heard. Kind of like Portland, um, some of these really progressive yeah. places. And especially the last two years, it's like, it's just been, obviously it's, you know, in the news a lot and a lot of riots and um, mm. independent um, countries being established in the middle of downtown or whatever that was. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's a, uh, it, it's definitely a challenging context in all kinds of ways. I mean, if you look at the history of our small faith community, we call it Pangea Church. Um, we, we had, as far as like, you know, a fairly traditional looking church, we had a, a season of that. There were sermons every week. We had small groups and we we're just doing that thing. Um, and we had quite a few more people during those years. And there was something that happened when Donald Trump was elected president and the year that followed that the kind of people we've attracted a lot of were people who were, they want Jesus, but they're kind of on the fence about church and maybe there's one last hope to try it. Mm. Basically, I would say 80% of those people over the year to year and a half following the election of Donald Trump faded out of our church community because they just could no longer find continuity between Christian people that they grew up believing love God and cared about the poor and all this stuff who were supporting someone with that kind of a hmm. um, toxic rhetoric and um, sort of a stance politically. Hmm. Um, and, and for them, it meant if, if these people don't represent something I want to be a part of, I don't want to own that label either. I'm either going to a become, you know, a couple of them joined a very liberal denomination, but for the most part, they de-churched and are post-Christian, I'd say, a lot of them, like spiritual but not religious, that nun zone mentality that we have here. Um, and that's not a judgment as much as, honestly, yeah. something I mourn because it, it's not isolated to my community. This is right. something I'm hearing about all over the place. And so it is a hard a hard space. Um, you know, the, the race stuff is uh, definitely relevant. We're a fairly white church part of town we're in, just kind of the nature, a white leader who started it up. Like it's just kind of how it ended up. Um, and we had to call some things out prior to the pandemic and the uprisings and um, various, um, you know, creating new autonomous zones that you alluded to, right? <laughs> like we were actually having some real um, challenging and important conversations using books like Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge as a Guide, um, and we're still having those conversations. Mm -hmm. We have an affinity group where a bunch of us who are white come together and talk about our own struggles with racism and try and do practices to re-narrate the world through lenses bigger than our own. Um, and so we're, we're, we're having to wrestle with a lot of that, but, yeah. um, what we don't have, and I'll, I'll stop with this, what we don't have in progressive Seattle is during a pandemic, we don't have people fighting for our rights, so to speak, to be back in church. <laughs> Everyone's like, no, let's do Zoom. It's safe. Let's wear a mask. Let's do the right thing. Let's follow policy. Let's all get vaccinated. And then we'll come back together and figure out what Pangea is after a pandemic. <laughs> and so that's what we do. I've never yeah. had one person say, why aren't we gathering? So yeah. so it's it's a different world for sure. Yeah. That's, you know, the, I feel like every other podcast conversation I've had, it, it does kind of come back to... Um, Sorry, I feel a sneeze coming on. Mm. <laughs> Hold on. You do you, man. You That's do the you. worst, man. Um, all right. 
I'll try to hold it in. My eyes are going to start watering. I'm going to sneeze through my eyes. Um, it, it does come back to a lot of these conversations. The I got to choose my words here carefully. The significance, and I'm using that new, mm-hmm. neutrally, um, of the of Donald Trump and Trumpism and whatever label you want to use, you know. And is I just I just literally had a conversation with. Uh, Pastor T Thabiti, uh, just right before you. And, um, mm. he, he said, and this is exactly what I've kind of, my, my hunch has been that, that Trump kind of unearthed a lot of things that were already there. They just needed to be yeah. kind of brought to the light. Um, but this, um, this kind of Trump, it's kind of unearthed a Trumpish view of evangelicalism, you know, like, and I'm, mm-hmm. again, maybe that's not even the best phrase, but like, um, you know, Don, Donald Trump is bold. He's brash. He makes comments that are, mm-hmm. you know, racist or very much sound like it. He's, he's probably clinically narcissistic. And I don't think that's too debated, mm-hmm. very full of pride yeah. and sexually immoral and, and terrible on Twitter. And, but it's like, you look at all those categories and it's like, that's basically 90% of Christians I know. They're, they're, se- <laughs> they're kind of sexually immoral. They're terrible yeah. on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media. They're filled with pride. They're very narcissistic. They don't apologize mm. when they do something wrong. You know, it's like, well, that's just, it's like he's kind of the embodiment of what evangelicalism has become in, in many circles. And what I just told a buddy mm. of mine who's kind of like every other pastor, it doesn't sound like you're dealing with it, but a lot of pastors I know, it's like all of a sudden the church is really divided on all of these issues. And it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. like, are we going to split over Babylon's politics, you know? And, and that's where it's uh-huh. at in a lot of yep. places. Um, yeah. And I said, part of the problem may have been, we have not been as leaders discipling um, Christians in these same categories before the rise of Donald Trump. So when Donald Trump totally. comes up and people are like, he's my Messiah, not, uh, not the Messiah, but it's kind of messianic, you know, in a lot of people's yeah, thinking. Yeah. I'm like, well, that, that if we had been doing discipleship before 2016 is 2020, um, then that, that we, they, we should, they, sh- people should have recognized that this is not a, an identity to surround yourself with. And, and like, I, I'm of the minds. I think yeah. people vote for Trump for all kinds of different reasons. Totally. So I, and I want to honor say that. that too. Yeah. Not, yeah. You know, like I, I have family members who dislike him thoroughly, but presented with only two options right. are like, well, his economics are a little bit better and I'm pro pro life. And this is right. the only version of pro life I understand right now. Right. Um, so I, you know, some people are like, cut out the Trump voters in your life. And I'm like, you're asking me to cut out like half to two thirds of the people in my life. Right. <laughs> I'm right. going to do that. Um, but I am at the same time going to call out Trumpism and, and say like, it is, it is damaging. Um, not just like, Oh, people feel bad. They don't like, you know, people are soft. It's literally deconverting people from the church. And that should be wow. an issue that even the Trump follower, Trump supporter should care about if they also care about the gospel message. And yeah. so that's where I want to have honest conversation with folks and saying, look, this ideology and rhetoric and this ongoing Fox News recycling of information is literally deconverting younger millennials and younger. Yeah. Do you really want that for the church? Yeah. Could there be a better way forward? Can we have better conversations about this stuff? How do you, you know? And that, that's, yeah. <laughs> oh man. 
Well, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like your church is largely on the same page with some of that. So you don't have to deal with, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, every other church I ever worked in, I would have had to have yeah. dealt with it, you know? And so I'm fully empathetic to that. And someday I may again, find myself in a church where I, I don't have the politics stuff is sort of, you know, similar in, in its vein. And so, um, I want to continue to be empathetic and have good conversation, but also to kind of point out, like for some of us who are not big fans of Trump, but are evangelicals, it, it's not even about like, I, because I have a, an allegiance to the political left, I really don't. Yeah. Um, but I care about human rights and there are a few human rights that paired with bad rhetoric are just mm. not being upheld. Um, and especially right now, uh, the issues around racism. I think it's just, this should be a nonpartisan, what are we going to do to yeah. rectify these last 400 years and honestly look at history as it is instead of our narrow version of it. And and so, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people come from, and then of course there's the polarities. And I think those um, just aren't helpful for good conversation. Um, but I don't subscribe to, oh, there's, there's truth on both sides. So somewhere in the middle is where we can be. I'm not that I'm, I'm just Mm. simply saying, let's nail down the real issues and be honest about them. And if, you know, black, black and brown folks are experiencing injustice, Mm -hmm. um, let's stop calling that political brainwashing or liberal snowflakeism or whatever. <laughs> Let's actually call that a gospel issue yeah. and say, I don't care that I'm a libertarian. I'm willing to give reparations if that's what it takes to rectify something broken to start yeah. afresh. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these it's, are I, things I think about. Yeah. I just think that there, it's just, um, the greatest, one of the greatest needs in the church is, is to cultivate places where we can have a conversation rather than a, a, tw- a yelling match on Facebook or something. And that's, Oh man, you know, cause totally. I, I think totally. there should be, there should be diverse perspectives on all these issues on, on race and politics and all this stuff. I, I would, I would like you, I mean, the, the extreme right or left, you know, the kind of, I don't know, QAnon and the, Antifa, I don't know, whatever you want to, whatever extreme categories sure, you want to, you know, sure. like both of those yeah, are just, yeah they're the same thing with a different content, you know, but, but having, sure. I think each side raises good question, you know, the, on, on the right, I think there is a concern on the authoritarianism, authority, the authoritarian left. And I'm like that, mm-hmm. that's yeah. 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 When Biden has well, like 50 executive orders, which compared to Trump's four or whatever, like that's a little concerning sure. and big tech and censoring and free speech and all the, you know, and then on the right, there's just, there's, obviously so many issues, you know, like just the only time they talk about race seems to be, you know, disagreeing with critical race theory rather than like, (laughs) well, how come the only time we hear you talk about race is like critiquing people that are trying to address the race issue. And then, yeah, it's it's a huge mess, but let's have, let's have the conversation. It's going to be heated. It's going to be messy, but it has to be around the table over bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. Satan is, is the greatest winner when these issues are dividing the church. It's crazy. It's insane. It just seems yeah. so blatant when the church is divided over who they voted for, which Babylonian leader they voted for. It's like, dude, we got to be better than that. We can, that this is a yeah. huge loss for the gospel, man. But oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think 
I, I, my conviction is one of the most important steps in that direction is for all sides to agree. And I'm thinking of the white church Mm -hmm. because that's sure. That's where the division really is. And that's where the challenges really are, um, around this kind of conversation. I'm not just counting the challenges of other communities, but you know, ultimately that's what we're talking about in a lot of ways. Um, I think it really has to start with us saying we're going to actually listen to um, black pastors who are naming injustice as real. Um, I mean, for goodness sake, listen to Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans on this stuff. Like you don't have to go even moderate theologically to get there. You just Wait, have to listen to people of color. What's he like, saying? I don't know. I don't know. I know of, of I mean, him and that he's conservative. He, Oh, yeah. I mean, he and I don't want to speak for him, uh, but I I simply know that as I've watched him put out videos over the last year about the real need to address racism in the church and systemically, um, he Hmm. brings pastoral wisdom that we should be listening to. And he is very conservative theologically. I mean, go get a Tony Evans Bible, (laughs) like you know, um, but but he's not you know, he's just one person that I bring up. There's many people of all kinds of different racial backgrounds than my own that are saying this is real world stuff. Mm-hmm. This is hurting our communities of color. Please listen to us, white white evangelical American Christians. And too many of us are so honed into our individual sorts of things that we aren't willing to see the corporate things that are really important as well. Um, so, so for me, I think it starts by let's Let's be led by voices that are both credible and not our not our own race. Um, yeah. Man, we've gone on a very interesting tangent, uh, <laughs> but but uh, you know I wouldn't expect any less from our conversation. No, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. You know, two white guys talking about this is all we're always at a disadvantage. But I think both of us are um, saying saying yeah the same thing. We just we need to be able to have better conversations about these issues and. You know, as, as yeah. you know, my, my Mennonite listeners, they keep asking me, when are you going to just come to our side? You know, when you talk about yeah. politics yeah. as an exile living in Babylon. And, and I think yeah. that's my, that is my, my biggest concern is, and I've said this on, you know, on the podcast several times, I, you know, I, I would be almost as concerned with Trumpism with the kind of anti-Trump hysteria or the, the side on the left, they would see the 74 million people that voted for Trump is all racist. Like, just put on your white hat, go lynch some, you know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. hold on. That's just, that's just not like, now you're doing the same thing. You're, <laughs> you yeah, know, you're, yeah, you're tired of yeah. conservatives broad brushing critical race theory. Well, you can't do the same. Just stop mirroring fundamentalism and, and see that there's yeah. complexity on, on both sides. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it's, I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm part of me is glad I'm not a pastor during these times because that I don't know if I'd have the patience with some of the very anti gospel types of thinking and behavior. And and when it comes to politics, it's like, gosh, when are we going to wean ourselves off of Babylonian partisan politics, not politics, but like partisanship, you know, and tribalism, you know? Yeah. Oh man. It's, it's a huge need. We, we need to be able to be a people who are known for speaking out for people who are suffering and asking questions like what, what can our voice and actions lend, lend, um, help to when it comes to alleviating the most suffering possible? Mm -hmm. Why, why can't the (laughs) church actually be that hospital voice, you know, instead of that, um, ruler and, uh, 
imperial voice that we get so addicted to so quickly. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, man, I, I pray, I lament, I do a lot of things with the Lord around these issues because, um, I think it's, I think the rhetoric and the challenges and the closed mindedness on all kinds of sides mm -hmm. dehumanize the, the, the formation of our souls. And, and Jesus says, no, with the power of the spirit and my guidance, mm -hmm. I can actually bring you into a space where you are becoming more human. Now mm -hmm. it'll take a resurrection to finally pull that all the way off. Mm -hmm. But between here and the resurrection, the spirit, that down payment wants to guide you into something yeah, um, of a formation journey where you can become more fully alive and awake to the move of God in our world. And yeah. so many of these issues are distractions from the beautiful possibilities that exist for our communities mm -hmm. and our individual lives as well. Wow, that's good, man. Well, hey, we're coming up on an hour here. Um, I've taken you oh, yeah. right wow. up to the our cutoff time. But uh, dude, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And again, uh, the book is Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain. Um, uh, at the recording of this podcast, it's it's coming out in a month, March 16th. But I think we're gonna re I will release this podcast right around the date. So if uh, any of the things, well, I guess the last 20 minutes for our conversation isn't yeah. probably <laughs> what your book's about, but humanity, Jesus, pain, suffering, even um, a bit of, especially people that have been through, I'm going to guess, I've not read it yet, but people whose painful journey has prevented roadblocks to their faith. I'm going to imagine mm. your book would really help that kind of person. Would, would that be an accurate yeah. assumption? Yeah. So... So there's basically two people I would consider in that zone. So one is like the person like me who's actually dealt with trauma in their lives and are trying to figure out mm. how do I follow Jesus in light of that. But I would also say that anyone who lives in a pain-filled world, this is a book for them too. So, so you may not have been abused as a child, but you have watched people die from cancer. You have lost mm -hmm. um, relationships. You have felt the wrath of disease and um, all kinds of brokenness of your own. And so uh, the only thing I didn't mention about the book is every chapter actually ends with a formation exercise um, that roots people in processing what they're walking through in the book. So there's literally 16 devotional pieces that are attached to the book as well that hopefully help accomplish some of that for them. So awesome. I'm excited. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, Kurt, thanks so much for being on Theology and Raw. Many blessings to you. you are you still have the Pangea blog? Is that? Yeah. So I transitioned. So yeah, it, it exists, but I don't write there. Um, all of my work is now at a site called theologycurator.com. Oh. Um, and uh, you can go there and you can get my newsletter. That's probably my biggest thing that I do is I send out a newsletter pretty regularly. Um, and then my podcast used to be called The Paulcast because I only focused on Paul, but now it's Theology Curator with Kurt Willems and it's a little bit broader okay. in theme. And so, yeah, feel cool. free to check that out. And I'm on the interwebs and all the other forums as well. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for being on the show, bro. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, man. This is great. <laughs>